bit of a continuation of what we were learning in Mayim Rabim. Not in terms of actually a continuation, but we learned in Mayim Rabim Parshas Noach about the advantage of challenges and how the challenges of living in the physical world, not necessarily the challenges of being a Jew, but just the challenges of surviving in the physical world are not only a hindrance to us being Jews, but actually a catalyst to giving us a much more meaningful, deep, um, deep and true Judaism, right? That's what we discussed in Maim Rabbah. What we're going to discuss in this Maim Rabbah is the advantage of struggling to understand the Torah, the advantage of struggling in the darkness of, um, of Torah study. And a bit of context of the name, right? The Dibra Maschal, the opening verse is Vayetze Yitzchak, which means and Yitzchak went out, Lasuach, to pray Basadeh in the field. And yes, Parshas Chayasar. So in Parshas Chayasar, there's a very long portion which relates the story of Eliezer, the servant of Avraham, going out to find a wife for Avraham's son, Yitzhak. Are you guys familiar with the story? He, um, Avraham did not want Yitzhak to marry somebody local, did not want him to marry someone local from the Canaan. He wanted to, him to marry someone from his own family. So he sent him far away to... Um, to find a wife from his own family, from where he originally came from. And he sent his most trusted servant, Eliezer. And the Torah relays in great detail, actually twice, the same story about Eliezer going, traveling, getting there with camels laden with gold and silver and jewelry um, to go. Wow, the name is escaping Basuel. Basuel was the, the father of, um, of Rivka, to go to Basuel, who was Abraham's cousin to convince, actually no, not to go to Basuel, to go to the land and to find a wife. He ended up going, and I'm sure you're gonna learn this story in much greater detail when it comes up to Chai. So he ends up going and going to the well to feed his uh, camels. And then there's a lovely young girl who approaches him and offers to help him feed all of his camels. And she doesn't leave until all of his camels, which were many, many, many camels were fed. And then she actually invites him into her home to stay. And he, Eliezer realizes, that this is the future wife of Yitzchak. Um, that is, Lavan is her, her brother. Is it part of the same story or no? No, it's for Yaakov. Oh, oops. But here we talk, uh, da, 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 he goes back to Lavan. Yaakov runs away to Lavan eventually. Um, and it's relayed that Basuel and Lavan were very, bad, very, very bad people, actually. And they tried to rob him and tried to kill him and all those things. But he eventually managed to convince them to give Rivka over, and he brought Rivka home. And this verse of Ayat Yitzchak Lasuch Basada is right before he meets Rivka. Right before Yitzchak is introduced to Rivka, his future wife, he goes out to pray in the field. And actually, this is the source of the prayer that we pray every single day of Mincha, the afternoon prayer, because the full pasuk, the full verse is Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuch Basadeh, and Yitzchak went out to pray or to talk, as we're going to discuss in the field, Lifnot Erev before evening. And um, our sages teach us that Avraham, it says Vayashkem Avraham Baboker, Avraham woke up early in the morning and he taught us about the prayer of Shacharit, the early morning prayer. And Yitzchak taught us. From his prayer here in this verse actually that he went out into the field to speak to pray before evening that's the source for the tefillah of um of, of mincha where we pray before it gets dark and yaakov um is the source for our prayer for the evening prayer of of mariv of aravit 
anyway, so that, that's a side point. We're not going to be focusing on that specifically. We're going to be translating la suach as to speak and specifically as to speak Torah, um, as we will see as we will see shortly. So I'm going to read just this introduction inside in English so we can get a bit of a handle, and then we're going to go inside. Just a reminder about the style of the Alter Rebbe. This is a classic um, Torah or Mimer where we start off with the opening verse from the Torah, and then we completely move away from the verse for a while, have to understand a few ideas, a few um, concepts in Hasidus and in Torah, and then we go back eventually to the original verse and explain it in a whole new light and a whole new dimension based on um, Hasidut. So we're not going to actually be focusing on this verse specifically right now very much, um, but let's, let's get into it, okay? Any questions or comments before we go in? Yes. Could you tell me the meaning of Maimar? Sure, definitely. A mimer means a discourse, and there's a difference between a sicha and a mimer. You might have heard of the Rebbe sichas. Um, a sicha, and we're actually going to be using that, discussing the word sicha in a moment, um, is when a Rebbe would give a talk about any topic. A mimer is when a Rebbe would speak specifically chasidot. So it was usually oral. There were times where Rebbeim would write down um, their mimers, but it was specifically by a Hasidic Rebbe who would get up and speak Hasidut. And we are learning the Alter Rebbe, who's the first Chabad Rebbe, um, his mimer. So his, his um, mimer and his teachings are the basis of Chabad Hasidus, because he's the founder. And then the, the Rebbeim that followed him, the six Rebbeim that followed him, the Chabad Rebbeim, would expound upon these mimer and elaborate on them and add. But these are very much like the core Foundations. Sure. Okay, so let's go inside. Page number two. Torah or Vayetza Yitzchak Lasoch Pasada, which is from Parshat Chayesara, um, verse 17. Uh, no, not verse 17. I think it's chapter 17, verse 2. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, verse 1 to verse 2. In Parshat Chayesara, the Torah describes the marriage of Yitzchak and Rivka. While Avram's servant Eliezer was bringing Rivka to meet Yitzchak, Yitzchak went out to the field to talk to Hashem in prayer in the evening before sunset. In the Gemara, they learn from this verse that Yitzchak established the custom to pray in the afternoon, what we call mincha. Another interpretation of the fact that Yitzchak went out to the field to talk was to say words of Torah, and that's the interpretation we're going to be sticking with in this mimer. In this mimer, the Alter Rebbe will explain on a mystical level the significance of the fact that Yitzchak went out specifically to the field to pray or learn and did not do so in a house or in a city and what the lesson is from the fact that this was before sunset. In order to explain this, you explain the idea of a field versus a house in a city as a metaphor for two different types of Torah study known as Mishnah and Brisa. Okay, so before we go inside, I wanna just share a mashal that the Rebbe used to share um, based on, a, the, this mashal was brought in the sikhahs of the previous Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, um, which goes like this, that there was a room and two people entered the room. One person was blind and one person was able to see. The person who was able to see opened the door, looked around the room, saw the exit, found the exit, and walked straight out. The blind person, on the other hand, was not able to see where the exit was. So he had to grope around and feel his way through the room until he was able to find the door and find the exit. And that's the mashal. And the nimshal, the idea is that if you would ask these two people to describe the room, right? Well, not the nimshal yet, but a part of the nimshal. If you would ask these two people to describe the room, ask the person who can see, what did you see in the room? He'll say, well, I didn't really notice much. There was a picture on the wall and 
and then I saw the door and I walked out, right? If you ask the blind person to describe the room, he's gonna know the room in much more intricate, intimate detail, right? Because he's been feeling his way around and say, oh, there was a couch and there was a lamp and there was a table um, and the wall was felt like this and it was rough and then it was soft and then, uh, you know, it was draped. Um, and then the door was made of, of like a solid wood, it felt like, you know, with a handle and, and, then, and then I left. So if you would, if you were to base this off of who, um, you know, who actually experienced the room more, it would be the blind person, the person who couldn't see. And specifically because he couldn't see, that's why he was able to have that experience. And, um, and that's the idea that we're going to be focusing on in this moment. It's the idea that when we learn Torah, we don't see, we can't see, we're blind. We're blind and we don't see the light of Hashem, the infinity of Hashem that is present in the Torah. Specifically, as we're going to discuss when we're learning the oral Torah versus the written Torah, we'll discuss the difference. And this actually gives us, on the one hand, a disadvantage because we are not experiencing the lofty light of God. But on the other hand, a huge advantage when we're grasping the Torah with its details, which is the name of this, um, which is the, the name that they gave this mimer here. Um, when we are groping around in the dark to try and understand and we're struggling, that's when we actually are able to truly reach the depths of the Torah. And so again, it's very much similar to the idea of uh, my Rabbin that we've been discussing. But here we're going to try and understand it in the context of Torah learning, why it's so difficult, specifically when it comes to understanding and appreciating halachot and how to actually serve God in the details, why it's so difficult to get to that place, why it's, you can't just open up a book and say, ah, oh, you know, can't open up the Torah and say, this is what God wants. You have to struggle for it. Um, we're going to see, we're going to see the reason and the advantage there. Okay, so just keep that mashal in mind. We're going to definitely be referencing back to it throughout, throughout the Mimer, and I'll, I'll bring in some more, some more stories um, shortly. Okay, so now let's go inside. Page number two, part one. And Yitzchak went out to talk in the field. The word sicha comes from lasuach, right? Sicha means uh, talk, or in modern Hebrew, it means a conversation. Lifnot Erev, before evening. Vayisa enav, and he lifted up his eyes, Vayar, and he saw, Vihine, and behold, Gukmalim ba'im, there were camels approaching. This is referring to that he saw Rivka, his future wife, approaching with Eliezer. And this is from our Pasha, from Pasha's Chayesor. Levaerze, in order to explain this, and again, to explain this according to Chasidot, to explain this on a deep level, First, we need to completely go away from the Pasuk, put a pin in it, put it on the side, and we first need to understand the difference between two things called Mishnah and Brisa. Has anyone heard of the Mishnah? Yeah. Has anyone heard of a Brisa? Yeah. No. Okay. So, the Mishnah is the oral Torah that was written down. So, there was a very interesting law that dates all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu, which is that there are certain parts of Torah that were written down, right, and that we have from generation to generation. That's called the Torah Shebichtav, the written Torah, which is the whole Tanakh, right? It's the five books of Moses, and it's the books of the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the writings, um, the, all of the Megillot that we have, and Tehillim, and the books from Shlomo HaMelech, um, the books of the prophets and the judges, that is all called the written Torah. We have it written down, passed down from generation to generation in a written form. Then we have what's called the oral Torah, which was relayed to Moshe at Mount Sinai, just as the written Torah was relayed to him, but it was never written down. It was taught to him orally, and he then passed down this oral Torah to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. 
And by the time of the Anshe Knesset HaGadol, have you guys heard of the Anshe Knesset HaGadol, the Great Assembly? They started in the time of the Second Temple. And um, their, their main role was really to, you know, they had already seen the destruction of the First Temple. And they knew that Judaism was not going to survive if it had to revolve around temple services, which is what it did from when the Jews came to, um, you know, from when the Jews were around. They had the Mishkan and the temple services and Jewish life revolved around that. And then they saw, wait, the temple was destroyed and they knew from the prophets that it was going to get destroyed again. They started to already prepare Jewish life in a way that it can survive outside of the context of a Beit HaMikdash. They are the ones who established the prayers that we know and, and many, many other things and customs, lighting Shabbat candles. The mitzvot to Rabbanan come, come from there. Many of the mitzvahs of the rabbis. So from the period of the Anshei Knesset HaGadola, for 600 years, there was a period of called the Tanaim. The Tanaim were sages. You might have heard of the Tanaim. They were very, very great sages who would interpret Torah um, and interpret Halakha and teach people and explain how we can get the practical Halakha how we can practically serve Hashem um, from learning the Torah. But everything that they taught, they taught orally, because this is all connected with the oral part of the Torah. They taught it with Rocha Kodesh, with divine, um, how do you say Rocha Kodesh? Divine spirit? Divine inspiration. Divine inspiration, thank you. Um, they taught it with divine inspiration, but it was never written down, because there was a law that you don't write down the oral Torah. So it was passed down from teacher to student, and father to son, and maybe mother to daughter, probably the ones, the laws that pertain to women, I'm assuming were passed down from mother to daughter, um, orally for 600 years, um, until a man by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, I don't know if you guys have heard of him, Judah the Prince, he realized that the Jewish people were in a decline for various reasons, and that they were no longer remembering and retaining all of this information orally. And that if he would not write it down, it would be completely lost forever. And all of our, not only our traditions, but literally our halachot, the way that we serve Hashem, um, the mitzvot and the laws would be completely lost. And so he called what's called a state of emergency, right? And he wrote down the oral Torah. And he gathered from thousands and thousands and thousands of what's called Mishnas, which are the teachings that were, L'shanen means to repeat, that were repeated during this period of 600 years of the Tanaim. He took from thousands and thousands and thousands of them. He chose the most concise, the most inclusive, and he put them into the six orders of the Mishnah as we know them today. That's what the Mishnah is. It's the oral Torah as it is written down and that we have access to today. It's written very, very, very cryptically, very concisely. There's not a single word in the Mishnah that's not um, supposed to be there, which is why we have an entire Gemara Talmud discussing back and forth what the Mishnah actually means and practically how we can extract um, the halacha from it. But those in the time of Yehuda Hanasi, they were able to open up a Mishnah and know exactly what it was saying, um, know exactly what the law was. Today, we, you know, through time, we needed to discuss it so we can really get down to, to the details. Yes? So, is this one that was written down in Jerusalem or is this one that was written down in Babylon? Yehuda Hanasi. He wrote the Talmud about it, right? Oh, so the Talmud comes after the Mishnah. The Talmud, I think Yehuda Hanasi lived in, in Israel, if I'm not mistaken. The Talmud comes after the Mishnah and it explains and discusses the Mishnah. So, the Talmud will always start off with the Mishnah. And then we'll discuss back and forth and back and forth arguments what the Mishnah actually means and what the Halacha actually is. What the, um, and that was done simultaneously in Israel, the Talmud Yerushalmi, and in Babylon, the Jews who had been exiled to Babylon. Um, 
who have been exiled many, many years previously, but then stayed in Babylon. So that's the Talmud. We're speaking a step before that, which is the Mishnah. Within the Talmud, we also have, we have Mishnahs. We have something else called Baraisas. A Baraisa comes the word bar inside Baraisa, means outside. And it's referred to, it literally means outside of the Mishnah. So there were many, many, many Mishnahs, many, many um, laws and customs that were passed down throughout the generations that were not included into the Mishnah, <coughs> that were not included by Rabbi Yehud Hanasi in the Mishnah, but that were written down because they that were gathered and saved and eventually written down. Not necessarily in, in, in there are some books of just prices, but you'll find it mainly at the, at the back of a Talmud. They'll bring sources of all the different prices. And this is referring to what we can call the progression of halakha. So the Mishnah is giving us the halakhot. It's giving us the laws. The prices are, are explaining to us the progress, the progression of how you get to those laws. Um, and this is a part of Torah, but it's considered to be, as we'll discuss, a lesser part. It's less holy because it wasn't included into the Mishnah. But they're brought in in the Talmud to try and understand the Mishnah and try and understand practically the laws and the progression of the laws that we have today. So that's a Mishnah and that's a Brisa. Are we clear on, on each one, Mishnah and Brisa? Okay, amazing. Let's go back inside. So in order to understand this Pasuk, we need to first understand it, um, the advantages of the Mishnah and the advantages of the Brisa. So oh, Brisa, what is a Brisa? Pirusha Mishnah. It's an explanation of the Mishnah. Mishnah because the Mishnah is the general idea, the general teaching. And the Brisa are all the details of how we actually ended up reaching the conclusion of the Mishnah. And we don't have in the general teaching uh, no more than it's what, it, what the details that it is comprised of. So the Mishnah is made up of many, many, many details which are considered to be the Brisa. The Mishnah is the clouds, the general rule. And we would think, it would seem, that the Brisa is on a lower level than the Mishnah. Because it has descended lower. So let's talk about that for a second. Hasidus explains that there are different levels within Torah. Starting off the highest, highest level, so to speak, of Torah is represented by the Luchot. Right? We know that the Luchot, the first Luchot, were molded, were created and written, carved out by God himself. The second Luchot were made by God and then carved out, written by Moshe. And they had the most godly light, most, the absolute most level of godly light. If you saw them, you would see God. You see godliness. Godliness. And that is represented by a level of Torah which is completely what's called light, revelation, because as we know, the Torah is Hashem's light, it's Hashem's wisdom, it's one with Him. Then there's the level of Torah Shabbat the written Torah. Within the written Torah, we have what's called the front and the back, the face and the back. The face, the front, is referring to panim, panim means face, what else does panim mean? Pnimiyot, what's pnimiyot? Internal, the inner aspect. So the face of the Torah references the godliness within the Torah. And a Sefer Torah, for example, has a, spe has a specific level of holiness, right? Because of this front aspect of the Torah that exists. But there's also then the back aspect, what's called the back. And that's the intellectual aspect of the Torah, where we don't see the light. We just see the intellectual process. We see the words and the letters and the shapes and the ideas and the laws. So there's a front and back 
of the written Torah, which so, so it's considered that there is an aspect of godliness within it, and then there's an aspect of uh, mundaneness to it. And then we have the oral Torah. The oral Torah is considered to be just back, just intellectual, purely intellectual. Um, which doesn't mean that it's not holy, right? Because it's teaching us how to serve God. But you don't experience God and revelation from reading the oral Torah as you would from reading the written Torah. And within the, written, within the oral Torah, that's what we're going to be discussing. There's the Mishnah and there's the Brisa. The Mishnah is the closest thing to the written Torah that we have within the oral Torah. So it's got more godly light and more revelation. And the Brisa, which is the, the process of getting to the Mishnah and the details are purely intellectual basically which which means that we don't experience godliness in any way when we actually read them not you know that doesn't mean we can read it in the bathroom it's still torah but it's um it's much less revelation okay so we would think that the brysa is the lowest lowest level the brysas if you would open up brysas deal with very 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 mundane things like uh, you know the difference between this cow and that cow and really 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 detailed nuances very very physical things um and it's not speaking about you know god at all actually it's just speaking about very physical things so we can understand how to serve god so we would think that the brysa is lower than the mishnah but the truth is at the bottom of page three, Habrisa Gavoyotar, that actually the Brisa is higher than the Mishnah. We say this in which means the end action is the first thought. So it's higher. And that's what this Mimer is going to discuss. How could it be higher? It's dealing with such mundane issues, such physicality, and so far away from actually, from God, it's dealing with just like really, really, really mundane issues. How can we say it's higher than the Mishnah? And this quote of Sof Maaseh, the Machshavat the actual deed was the original intention. Um, the Mashal that Chastas brings for this quote, for this idea that we're gonna be elaborating on, is somebody who wants to build a house. So, I don't know if any of you guys have your dream home in mind. I'm not sure. Some people, some people do. Some people don't. Some people have their dream wedding. Some people don't. Um, but let's say you have a dream home, your dream home, your future home, and you're imagining it in your head. When you imagine it, you imagine it completely finished, right? Down to the last detail. You sitting, let's say, on a couch drinking your coffee in this beautiful home that you're dreaming of. That first thought is actually the last action. In order to get to that place, you first have to go and meet with an architect and meet with an interior designer and meet with a real estate agent and find the plot and build it from, and deal with the foundations and build it up and up and up and painting and all of these little details in order to get to the final product all the way at the end, which is you sitting on your, on, on, on your couch drinking your coffee in your dream home. So the last action, the final step, was the original thought. And the idea is that that's the same thing with God. That God had an original thought. He had uh, it came up in his thought. What came up in his thought? His dream home, which was the world as we know it. The world as we know it, where there are, there are Jewish people who are doing mitzvahs, who are learning Torah, serving God in the physical world. That was God's original intention. Then God had to actually go through the step-by-step -step process to make that a reality because we know, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we know 
that it's actually an impossibility for God, for there to be a world that feels completely independent and separate from God. And then within that, that there should be people who feel independent and separate, and despite that, that they should put themselves aside and serve God. So in order to get to this reality that we're living right now, and we're progressing toward the ultimate reality of Mashiach, which is, the, the, which is you know, the true, true, true final intention and thought of God, God had to go through many steps. And we've, we've spoken about some of those steps before Hasidus and Kabbalah deal with them at length. All the steps that God had to go through in order for the final thing for Jewish people who feel separate from him to serve him through Torah and mitzvahs in a physical world, right? So we spoke about how God had to remove his light. We spoke, we spoke about it here, right? How um, the Tzimtum Arishon, all the different... Um, all the different layers of God having to conceal himself, conceal his light, introduce physicality, introduce limitation, so that eventually, 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 eventually we can live in the world that we have right now. So why is a brysa, which deals with very, very, very mundane, ungodly seemingly issues higher than the Mishnah? The answer is, that the actual deed was the original intention. And we're gonna continue to discuss, to discuss that inside. It says, since only through the knowledge of the details of the mitzvahs explained in the b'risa are we able to actually fulfill them. It comes out that there is an advantage in the b'risa over the Mishnah. Because when you go down to the smallest, smallest, minutest detail, that's where we're actually able to know how to serve God. Dehine, because we see, that Torah descended very low down. Even into dealing with things that are lies. So we know that the Torah originates in God's wisdom, in the highest, highest spiritual place that we can ever get to, which is what's called Chochmah of Atzilut, right? The highest spiritual world, the highest Sephira within the spiritual world, God's wisdom. That's where Torah originates. And it came down all the way to the Torah as we have it here, which is the same Torah, which is why Torah is compared to water. Have you ever heard that Torah is compared to water? Because water, just as it's up there in heaven or up there on the mountains, and it comes down here, it's the same water. So too with Torah, it's descended, and it's the same Torah, but it's descended into the physical world, and now it deals with very physical things. So if you open up the Torah, the, the, the written Torah, but the oral Torah for sure, and the is even more so, you're going to just see the physical world. You're just going to see details and questions that have to do with the physical world. You're not going to see God at all. To the point that Torah deals with questions of who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie. We know that God is the ultimate truth. And so Torah is truth. But Torah has descended so low into this world that it's actually dealing with questions of who's telling the truth and who's lying. It's, it's um, acknowledging the fact that there could be this thing called lie, which is the opposite of truth, which is the opposite of God, and which is the opposite of the Torah. So Torah has really descended to the point that it deals with questions of who's telling the truth, who's lying, and it brings an example, a case that's discussed in the Talmud, Ze Omar Ani Matzasiyah. This one says, I found it. This, this um, in Baba Matziah discusses a scenario where two people found a, a garment, they call it a talit, and each one grabs onto it, one side and one side, and one says, no, this is mine. And the other one says, no, this is mine. And if both of them are saying this is mine, that means that one of them is lying, right? Um, and then the Talmud goes back and forth. Who do you, you know, what, what do you do? Who, who does it belong to? Um, and it's relating to topics and ideas which are untruths, right? That somebody can be telling an untruth. And we know that Torah deals with way worse, way, way um, harsher, 
um, physical things than just people telling lies, right? Torah deals with all sorts of, um, of scenarios which are the opposite of, of God, the opposite of Torah, and the opposite of truth. Um, so that's the idea here. That's the example brought. So the law is that each one swears that he doesn't own less than half of the garment, and they sell the garment, and each one keeps half of the value of the garment. But, but one of them was lying, right? One of them was, was telling an untruth. But that's, that's how they resolve it in Baba Messiah. In this case, one of them is definitely lying, since each one claims to be the only one to have found it and therefore has the right to keep the entire thing. Even in this case of people lying, the Torah describes what we should do. This is reminding me of the famous story of King Solomon. There's a story related to, it says about King Solomon, Shlomo Amelech was the son of King David, that he was the smartest man to ever live. And they, to, an example of a story to prove just how smart he was is that there were two women who came before him and each claimed that this newborn child was theirs. Have you guys heard the story? Mm. Um, and obviously, two women can't have one child, right? That's just an impossibility, which means one of them was lying. And how did King Solomon figure out which one was lying? Um, he said, okay, you know, we're going to do right here what we do here. We're going to cut the talit in half. I'll split it up. You take one half of the child, you take the other. And he saw that one woman said, yeah, okay, that sounds fair. Right? Well, the other one said, don't take him. Don't cut, you know, don't cut him in half. And that's how he realized who was, who was, the, real, who was the real mother there. Okay, sorry. That was just a, just a cool story. Olafi Hanira, Hasidus actually has some, some cool interpretations about that story. Olafi Hanira, we would think, that this is a great descent for the Torah, that it's actually an embarrassment almost for the Torah, that it has to descend to such a point that it's dealing with scenarios and questions of who's telling the truth and who is lying. Nonetheless, page number five at the top, it's actually the highest thing. The lower down the Torah descends, the more it starts to deal with details of the physical world, even to the point of who's telling the truth and who's lying, that's the highest point of Torah that we can actually reach. Why? Because the end result, the actual deed was the original intention. So even though the Torah as it exists in the spiritual planes, because we know that Torah does not only exist down here, but it, does, it exists on every single level, every single spiritual level, the malachim, the angels in heaven, even the higher level of angels, they're learning Torah. The souls in heaven, they're learning Torah as well. It's, not, it's the same Torah, but um, with more light, with more revelation. Um, and we see that even down here, actually, tzaddikim, righteous people, certain ones who have Ruach HaKadosh, divine inspiration, when they look at the Torah, they see that godly light. They actually are able to see it and experience it in a way that we cannot because we don't have this divine inspiration. And the argument of the Mimer is that we actually have an advantage over those tzaddikim who have Ruach HaKadosh in our Torah learning because we are able to grasp onto details and nuances that they would miss because of the amount of revelation and light that they have. Um, there's a story with the Reb Rasha. We can finish off with this for today. Um, there's a story of the Reb Rasha that he once wrote to one of his chassidim, who was much older than him. Uh, he wrote to him a question in Imre Bina. Have you guys heard of Imre Bina? Imre Bina is a book of chassidus written by the Mitzla Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, the son of the Alter Rebbe. And it's known to be the most difficult um, book of Hasidus that exists. It's like super, super. In general, the Torah of the Mitzvah is very difficult. Um, but the Imre Bina is like the most difficult. I remember I was a shlucha in Mohan Alta, and one of the girls came over to me. We had chavurses, and she said, okay, I want to learn Imre Bina with you. And I was like, no, no way. Like, that's not happening. I'm not going to know a thing. 
It's very difficult. The Rebbe Rashab actually said that, um, that, he, that he lost his hair from, from trying to understand the Imre Bina. So the Rebbe Rashab wrote a question, telegrammed, wrote a question to one of his chassidim on a topic in Imre Bina, a question. And the chassid never responded, he never replied. Because who was he to explain chassidus to his Rebbe? Um, and then it came a time where the Rav of the town um, where this Hasid lived came to visit the Rebbe Rashab. And the Rebbe Rashab said to him, by the way, somebody from your town, I sent him, I sent him a message and he never responded. And so this Rav went back and he started yelling at, I think his name was Reb Chaim Bear. He started yelling at Reb Chaim Bear. I don't remember his last name. How could, how could you ignore a message from, from the Rebbe? How could you do such a thing? And he said, well, did the Rebbe tell you what was in the message, what, what the question was. He said, no, he said, well, I'll tell you. He asked me to answer a question of his in Imre Bina. He said, okay, okay, I understand. <laughs> we don't go and explain Hasidus to the one who, who brings down Hasidus, you know. Um, so he said, I understand, fine. And, 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 um, and Reb Chaimber said, and I trust that he'll be able to figure it out on his own. He doesn't need me. And word got back to the Rebbe Rashab uh, about, about his answer. And there was once a time where the Rebbe Rashab was in this town on Shabbat. And Reb Chaimber was there. And Reb Chaimber was in another room and he was praying. And the Rebbe Rashab walked into the room and watched him pray in uh, probably the classic Chabad style, which is in a much quieter, in a quieter way. And he, he, he stood there and he, and he watched him pray. And after he finished watching him pray, the Rebbe Rashab said, I got my answer. So he explained, what does it mean I got my answer? He said, I had a question in Imre Bina, right? I had a question. My question was, whether this is something that's able to be understood on an intellectual level by a human being or whether it's not. And I'm not able to know that because all I see is the truth. I see the light. I see the answer. So I don't know if this idea that's brought down in the Imre Bina is able to be understood by a, a normal human being without Ruach HaKodesh. So I was requesting from you to explain it to me. But by watching your davening, by watching the way you pray, you answered my question that it is able to be understood because by the way you pray, I can tell that you did understand this concept, that you did understand this idea. So we see here a, a situation where the, Rebbe, where the Rebbe is actually dependent upon his chassim to understand Torah. Because sometimes you get blinded by the light, which is what we've been discussing, right? Blinded by the light so that you miss out on the details and you don't know, is this something that's able to be brought down into this world or is it not? And you don't know that and you don't see it on that level. Um, so, so, so that's just kind of a one, one story. Uh, there was another story I wanted to bring. I'm not remembering it. Um, oh, with Tzemach Tzedek. I hope I remember. I don't remember. Let's see how many details I remember. It's a very interesting story. Um, in the time of the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe? Third Lubavitcher Rebbe. The son of the Mitzler Rebbe, Tzemach Tzedek. He's the one who compiled um, the Torah as we know it, as we discussed. Um, he was known not only for his great knowledge in Hasidus, but for his great knowledge in what's called Nigla, in the revealed Torah. And he, um, there was a Shochet in the town at the time, a shochet is a ritual slaughterer, and 
shochtim, ritual slaughterers, have lots and lots of rules. They have to have a certain level of yirat shamayim, of fear of heaven, and they have to conduct themselves in a certain way to be able to be in charge of the kashrut of the entire of the entire town. And this shochet had been accused of doing something that made him be stripped of his privileges to be to be a ritual slaughterer. He had done something, some sin that he he wasn't able to continue. Um, and the brother-in-law of the Tzemach Tzedek, I don't remember his name, sent him a message. Sent him a telegram saying, um, I know that this man is innocent. I know he's innocent. Can you prove it? Because you are the one who knows Nigla. You, 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 know, you know Torah so well. Can you prove it? Can you help me prove it so that we can actually get this man um, you know, back, get back, back his job, his reputation, whatever it is. And the Tzemach Tzedek responded to him, that this is not actually the case. He did sin, but he washed away his sin with tears. And the idea is that this, the brother-in-law of Tzimach Tzedek, who was inside himself, looked at this man, and he saw right through into his soul, and he saw that there was no sin there. There was no sin. So he said, help me prove that there's no sin. Tzimach Tzedek said, no, he actually did sin, but he washed it away with tears. He did so much teshuva that the sin like, was removed from him. But that doesn't mean that he could become a, a ritual slaughterer again because the halacha says if you've done something, it doesn't matter how much chuva you do, there's certain instances, certain circumstances where if you've done so, uh, ABC, you are not able to do XYZ. And so the Tzemach Tzedek said, I cannot prove to you with nigla what you see with the, with the back of the Torah, the intellectual side of the Torah, what you see from the front of the Torah. Um, so this is another scenario here where, where at the end of the day, what establishes our conduct and service of Hashem in this world, not divine inspiration, but the actual details and nuances that we struggle with in this world. So the way to really know how to serve Hashem is not by this enlightenment. It's by struggling and learning and grasping the Torah, as we said, with its details. So we'll continue with this idea and its relevance, maybe, I guess we could say, on a more of a grander scale in terms of the context of, of our service of Hashem and in the world tomorrow. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments before we finish for the day? Okay. okay, have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Really happy to have you